0: Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, my friends. This is Rick Thomas. Thank you so much for joining me. I am at lifeovercoffee.com. That's where you can find us. By the way, our mission statement is we exist to bring hope and help to you and others by creating resources that spark conversation for transformation. And so I trust that you find hope and help through this presentation, not just for you, but also for others. And of course, the double blessing would be that it would spark conversation for transformation. That is what we are about here at lifeovercoffee.com. If you haven't checked us out, please go to our coffee shop. Again, it is in cyberspace, and virtually all of our resources are free. Uh, We specialize, so to speak, in the practical application of God's Word. We want to teach the practical message of Christ to whosoever will. We want to take the Bible and communicate it plainly so that you can practicalize it in your lives so that you can experience that transformation. You can receive hope from God as well as practical help. And the big idea is that you will take that and export it to others. In this particular webinar, I want to talk about our competing psychologies. The subtitle is The Best Book for Soul Care. There are two competing psychologies in our culture today, the DSM and the BIBLE, and I want to make a persuasive argument that the Bible is sufficient for those things that are uh, wrong with us, the things that are happening in our psyches, the things that are going on in our souls by the way this webinar is a companion webinar it is it is a two-part series this is part one our competing psychologies what i would encourage you to do is to watch the second companion which is a biblical perspective on disorders where i get inside the dsm and talk about the various labels that they give us and then present a better argument through the sufficiency of Scripture. It is a detailed webinar. This one here is foundational. This is presuppositional that lays the groundwork upon which the other one will stand. And so if you haven't watched a biblical perspective uh, on disorders, I would encourage you to do that after you watch this one, Our Competing Psychologies. The big idea is that there are two competing authorities present in the pathway to transformation. And so I trust that this will be a persuasive argument for the sufficiency of Scripture. There are many Christians today who believe the Bible But then when it comes to their problems, their psychological problems, and I will go into detail in a few moments as to what that word psychology actually means. But they believe the Bible. They are professing Christians. They attend their church meetings, and they love to hear God's word preached expositionally. But when they have problems on Tuesday afternoon in their living room, The tendency is to go into the DSM or to uh, be beholden to those labels or to look for folks like a clinical psychologist or a a therapist to receive the help because they do not know how, do not understand, do not believe uh, that the Bible is sufficient, not just intellectually, that it gives us hope for heaven, it teaches us how to become Christians, but the Bible is more than our salvific privilege to be born again. Uh, The Bible also helps us in our sanctification every step of the way, and that is the big idea here, there is competition, the two competing authorities, and the one that you choose will determine the course and the quality of your life. This is a watershed question that you have to answer, and depending on the answer well it will depend it will uh, send you in one of two different directions the key verse that i will be uh, launching from here is second timothy 3 16 and 17 paul said this to his uh, young mentee uh, timothy he said all scripture is breathe out it is expired we use the word breathe out because expired doesn't sound cool when we uh, say it in the english but it's it is breathed out by God and is profitable for four things. Notice the sequencing here. Teaching, reproof, correction, training, in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good word. And so we have the authoritative psychology book. And Paul is talking about that here, and he gives us a a formulaic sequence as to what it can do. It can teach, it can reprove, it can correct and train. Of course, as you continue to explore the greatest psychology book that has ever been written, the Bible, uh, you will learn uh, all the ins and outs of teaching and reproving and correcting and training so that the man of God or the woman of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And so, in order to start this presentation, it is important that we understand the word psychology. And so, let me briefly detail that out for you. First of all, psychology is the combination of two words, and those words are psyche, suke, which means soul. In Genesis 2-7, it says that the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground, and he became a living psyche. He became a living soul. We understand from that text of Scripture that God is the author of the soul. He is the creator of the soul. He created our souls, our psyche. Now, please Take just a moment to reflect upon that. That is a powerful statement. Nobody else can make that statement, but God is the author of our souls. Now, that means that uh, he understands uh, uh, in, the, in, in the most intricate ways of our souls. He knows us afar off, and he knows us intimately. He is the author of our souls for those of you who are Christians, he operates in your soul. Even for those who aren't Christians, they have a conscience, a conscience, a co-knowledge, that inner voice. And so God has given us the tools to cooperate with him to explore our souls, whether it's the conscience of the unregenerate person or the conscience of the Christian, and then the illumination of the spirit, and of course, God's word, and then there is the community faith faith. We have many means of grace to explore our psyches and to understand it so that we can untangle ourselves from our pre-regenerative state. Total depravity. We are fallen. As you know, a few verses later in chapter 3, verse number 6, well, we became fallen creatures and everything went dark. And so God sent a Redeemer to make us alive again. And then, of course, He has given us the word concerning the soul, and that is what we see in 2 Timothy 3.16. God breathed out again. As you saw in our key verse for this presentation, he expired, he breathed out his word, logos. Now the word logos means the study of or the word concerning. And so you could say accurately, that the word psychology is the study of the soul, or the word concerning the soul. And so God is the author of the soul. God is the author of the word concerning the soul. So not only did he create us, but he inspired men to write the word. So he is the author of the soul book. The purest psychology book that you will ever read, it transcends every other psychology book. And that is God's word. Now, I know many people view the Bible as simplistic. Again, it's great for expositional preaching on Sunday morning as we learn about God's Word, as we grow in knowledge of God's Word, and we go uh, to our Bible studies, and we love to dig into Scripture and parse the Greek and exegete passages and even craft sermons and study lessons so that we can continue to teach ad infinitum, and we grow in our knowledge. But the stumbling block for many of us is that we do not know how to apply God's Word practically to our lives. I believe that God's Word gives us everything that we need for life and godliness, that it will weave into our souls, and the Spirit of God will illuminate our minds, and we will not only learn it, grow our knowledge base, but we will be able to apply it in practical ways that will bring transformation transformation by the way this word psychology suke lagos the study of the soul it belongs to a to a large Lagos family. And so it should not be unusual to think of the word uh, psychology as the study of the soul. For example, uh, anthropology, Anthropos Lagos. The word Anthropos means man or humanity. And of course, Lagos means the study of man. And we know that there are many anthropologists. Of course, there is theology, Theos Lagos, that is the study of God. There is soteriology, the study of salvation. There is harmoniology, the study of sin. There is ecclesiology, the study of the church. There's eschatology, the study of end times. And there are several other of these logos words in the logos family. And so it makes rational, logical sense that the word psychology means the study of the soul. Therefore, we just have to determine which Book are we going to use as uh, the source material for studying the soul? I am making a case here that, well, uh, I would adhere to and follow the one who created the soul and the one who created the word concerning the soul. Therefore, to repeat, the greatest psychology book that has ever been written is God's word, and it is the Bible. But in Genesis 3, 6, as I referenced earlier, we see the dawning of two psychologies. Genesis 3 presents two kinds of counsel for the first time in history. When Adam and Eve chose to sin, there was an intersection. Now we can go left or right. We have two options. We have two psychologies. We have uh, two Bibles, so to speak. In our current times, which I will talk about in a few minutes, those two Bibles are the Bible and the DSM, the DSM five. TR, as of this presentation, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, number five, the text revision version of it. But that all began in Genesis 3, where we have two kinds of counsel. When Satan said, did God say, casting a shadow and casting doubt into our minds to the sufficiency of God's word? Well, he was talking about Genesis 2, where God told Adam, he gave Adam and Eve counsel, If you do this, you eat of the tree of knowledge of of good and evil, well, you will surely die. That is counsel from God himself. Satan suggested that, well, there's another version that you should listen to. And now that we are all born post-fall, we live in this double psychological world where we have to make this watershed uh, answer to the question, which psychology are we going to be beholden to? And so Satan was counseling Eve to follow her intuition, to follow her logic instead of the Creator's word. And I challenge you at this point, I too had to come to that decision Everybody does. Now, whether we think through it, as I'm suggesting in this presentation, where it's more of a deeper dive into psychology people make that decision every day. Uh, we choose every day as to whether we're going to follow our own intuition and our own logic, or we're we going to follow God's objective word. Whenever we turn inward, uh, that is that is not a direction that we want to spend much time doing. Yes, we want to analyze ourselves, think about ourselves, diagnose ourselves, but we don't want to spend too much time looking into our depravity uh, because we will start clinging to our intuition and logic and it will be the governing... Uh, it will be the governing way that we will work through our problems, and of course, uh, there is a way that seems right to humanity, but that way will see uh, will lead to death, as the Bible is very clear uh, in explaining to us. But there is a truth that is outside of us, that is not skewed by our presupposition. It, it's not influenced by our darkness, and most definitely not manipulated by our selfishness, or it is not beholden to our self-reliant spirit and so rather than relying on ourselves we can trust God's Word not just for salvation but also for our sanctification but at the dawn of the two psychologies in Genesis 3 6 the center of truth shifted from God the author of the soul and his word the greatest transcending psychology book ever written to the heart of humanity. Now, I think for the believer who is watching this presentation or listening to the audio version of it, you know that that is dangerous. For example, just take a child. For those of you who have children who are 10, uh, 12, 15 years of age, do you want them looking within themselves, within their own souls, and determining what truth is? Well, no, of course not. We know better. They need something more objective, and I am saying that we have that in God's Word. But people became the determiner of truth, a change in our presupposition about truth. And so I mentioned presupposition already, and I think it would be important for us to think deep, uh, more deeply about it, to understand what presuppositional truth is. Uh, The gentleman that's done the most work or the initial groundbreaking work on presuppositional apologetics is a man named Cornelius Van Til. Uh, He has some wonderful work that you can research. He's also had students such such as John Frame and others who have uh, continued his work into presuppositional apologetics. What Cornelius Van Til taught us is that there are no neutral facts. Now, what he meant by that is that nobody responds objectively to anything. We all are subjective creatures, meaning that we do not respond to objective truth, but we respond to our interpretation of truth. Every fact, no matter what it is—he would call it brute facts— It is interpreted through a lens. Many times I would illustrate it as you've got two, three, four, five people in a room, and they're all wearing a pair of glasses, and each pair of glasses is a different color. It can be blue and red and orange and yellow and green. It doesn't matter. But everybody is looking through a lens. That lens is our presupposition. Now, our presuppositions are shaped by all sorts of things. Well, first of all, we are born in sin. We are totally depraved. And so we have a natural way of looking at truth. Uh, For those of you who are Christians, you can see the difference between the lens exchange. When you were, uh, before you were born again, you had a particular lens. It's the way you thought about God. It's the way you thought about Christians, the Bible. It's the way you thought about the world. It's the way you thought about all things. It was a, uh, let's say, a total depraved lens that you wore. And of course, it's your presupposition. It skews. It gives you your interpretation, and it doesn't matter what you're looking at. And then after God regenerated you, you are now born again. It is like a great glasses exchange, and now you're wearing a new pair of glasses, and you look at things differently. I remember before I became a Christian, there were some Mormons that showed up at our home, and I didn't know the difference between a Mormon and a Jehovah Witness and a Christian, and... A Muslim. I mean, they were all religious, and they were all the same. That was the lens through which I looked through. And when I saw those Mormons, I thought to myself, I do not want to do that. I do not want to be them. Those people are weird. I don't want to have anything to do with them. They're religious people, and that is not for me. That is the lens through which I saw. And then someone uh, presented the gospel to me, and eventually I was born again. The great glasses exchange, and then I had a new lens. It's when I looked at a Mormon, well, I saw religious people, but I didn't see Christian. I saw Mormon. When I looked at Jehovah Witness, I just saw Jehovah Witness. I saw I saw Muslim. I saw Christian. I could now not only see uh, truth from lies, but I could see the gradations in religion. And there were so many other things that began to change for me as well, including how I th- even thought about the word Father. Because of my shaping influences, the word Father is not a neutral fact. My father gave me a particular lens how I thought about the word father, how I thought about him, how I thought about God the father. As a matter of fact, one of the compelling reasons that I went into a legalistic church environment after I was born again is because Well, God the Father was authoritative, and if I did not hit all the marks, if I did not do as he said do, the other shoe would drop, and I would be in trouble because I had a skewed lens. Even God the Father was not neutral. I viewed him through a a skewed, discolored presupposition. Well, over time, as I began to read God's Word, I began to understand that well, there are gradations and there are differences even in the word father. And so we all have a presupposition. None of us respond to facts as they are. We all respond to our unique interpretation of facts. Let me illustrate it this way. We have two apples on the screen. We have two people standing in an orchard, and they are looking at the apple. One person is a Christian, and the other is a non-Christian. One wears blue glasses, and the other wears red glasses, we could say. And so they're both looking at the apple. But because of their presupposition, their lenses are different. Well, their starting point is different. Their filter is different. Their responses is going to be different. I am stacking words on the screen that you can see here. Now, these words are not... They do. One does not flow into the other. It's just a, a mixed up bag of words that belongs to each column. And so, in the left hand column, you see truth and believer and cre- creationist and discipler. In the right hand column, you see uh, uh, lies and nonbeliever and evolutionist and psychologist. Again, the lens that these two people have will determine to uh, the things that they will believe, the people that they will be beholding to. For example, the Christian worldview, we would be looking for a disciple maker. We'd be looking for a biblical counselor, a non-Christian because of the lens that they're looking through. What they will be looking through, looking to and, and looking for is a psychologist. Let's add some more words. We would be God-centered. They would be person-centered. We have a Redeemer. At best, they can have uh, find self-help. They can turn over new leaves and have a new New Year's resolution, but they will never find lifelong, sustainable, transformative help because you can't find that outside of God's Word. Uh, We can actually transform from the inside out. The best that a non Christian can do is find relief. And of course, they will find that, psychologically speaking, through the DSM. In fact, that's what the word medication means. It is hidden right in the word. Uh, they will do behavioral modification. They will medicate you uh, a cessation or a reduction or an obviation or a mitigation of whatever the behaviors are to give you relief. But the DSM and that pathway cannot uh, root out what is going on inside the individual. But God's word the true psychology book, can not only change you behaviorally, which is what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 5, where he said, amputate. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. Your hand offends you, cut it off. That is behavioral modification, and there is a place for behavioral modification. If you are drinking excessive alcohol, amputate. Stop doing that. However, if you want to change, well, now we're talking about mortification. You have to get inside the heart and root it out at its source, not just behaviorally modify. And so God's Word will teach you how to behaviorally modify, and God's Word will teach you how to root it out at its source. And that is one of the beauties of the greatest psychology book ever written. And so what I want you to understand here is that there are no neutral facts. Everybody brings an interpretation into everything that they see, everything that they experience, every relationship that they have, uh, even the ways that they look at their jobs, look at money, look at food, it doesn't matter. There are no neutral facts. And so I trust that you will have a compelling desire to not only have a Christian or biblical presuppositional worldview, but to mature in it as you continue to grow in the knowledge and the application of the Bible, the greatest psychology book. And so the one person looking at the apple will give glory to God. Uh, Well, that is a Christian lens that he's looking through, and then the other person will give glory to self, presuppositional Truth. Now, as far as the Bible and the key verse that I was mentioning, referencing earlier, I want to go back just very briefly uh, to 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. The Word of God is profitable for four things. I mentioned the sequencing or the linkage. I want to look at that, show that to you visually on the screen. First of all, we have the psychology book. We have God's Word. When we open God's Word to read it, study it, memorize it, hear it preached, however we learn from God's Word, it has an effect on us. Paul says that, well, it, it will bring conviction. Now, conviction is a good thing because conviction, it... Uh, identifies. It's, it lets us know uh, that there is something wrong. And the only way that we can know that there's something wrong is through God's Word. And so the logic here makes sense. By the way, you see on the screen that there is a there's a target. And that is what uh, the doctrine of sin means. Harmoniology, the metaphor that we use, is missing the mark. And so when we read God's Word, every now and then we recognize uh, that maybe we have missed the mark, and we sense conviction from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is grieved and and quenched. He's alive in us. We have been made alive in God. The Spirit of God lives inside of us, and so we read His Word. Word, and then we realize that our souls are not aligned with God's Word, that we are disordered. And so we feel the conviction from the Word as the Holy Spirit is grieved inside of us. But God does not leave us hanging. Uh, Just under conviction, there is a pathway, and that's what we see in 2 Timothy 3. God's Word corrects us. The picture here is like the setting of a bone. Our bones are broken, and so the doctor comes along, and he sets that bone, and he, he makes everything better, and then he puts us on a new path, a path of righteousness as we are being trained in God's Word, and that is an ongoing process until we experience glorification at death when we see Jesus At death, we will be completely perfect at that point. But in the meantime, we go through this sequencing over and over again. And so we want to bury ourselves in the psychology book. First, to become saved, to be born again. And then two, to continue to grow up, as Peter said, as newborn babes. We want to drink the milk. And then, well, as the Hebrew writers said in chapter 5, verses 12, 13, and 14, we want to begin eating meat so that we could mature into full Christ-likeness. So these are the four elements of change sequenced there for us in 2 Timothy 3.16. Now, as we think about our souls, one of the things that I would love for you to uh, perceive and, and to grow in ever-increasing appreciation is that uh, the Bible is so comprehensive and it's so in-depth. It gets into the minutia of our psyches, our souls. It gets into the minutia of who we are. I want to illustrate that very briefly by looking at the soul, the soul and the body, and then also behaviors. I'm going to. Lay out three spheres here, and then inside of each sphere, uh, I'm going to give you a word cloud. Now, please understand that this is not an exhaustive uh, word cloud. It just gives you an idea to the sufficiency of Scripture and some of the things that you want to look at when you're trying to understand what might be going on in someone's soul. Let's say that you're discipling an individual. You want them to change, to repent, to transform, to mature in Christ-likeness. There are so many things that you can address, think about, look at, ask God to give you the insight on as you study the Bible and apply the Bible to their lives. And so as we look at a person's soul, we see some of the elements that can be inside a person's soul. And you see that on the screen here, integrity, affection, morality, goodness, you'll see a little bit of the through the Spirit here and gentleness and patience. Also motives. Motives are essential, and you want to help a person to discover their motives, because what we're trying to do is to root out. We're not trying to medicate. We're not trying to modify someone's behavior only, but we're trying to get inside that behavior, again, where it is sourced, into the control center, as John Calvin would say, our idol factory. And so the Bible gives us many labels. It gives us a huge word cloud, and this is just a partial listing of some of the nomenclature inside the soul that gives us many opportunities to think about the person correctly, because each person is different And so we want to ask God to give us discernment to study the soul so that we can bring the appropriate unique care to that unique individual. And then there is a hybrid of soul and body, and some of the things that you see here in this sphere are intellect, education, cognitive insight, analysis, understanding, physicality, strong-heartedness, sturdiness, thoughts, discernment, wisdom, and so forth. And then of course we are looking at behaviors, and within this sphere we see uh, several words here also. And so it again this is a partial listing of some of the insight that the bible gives us to help us to to understand what is happening inside of a person now those of you who have more than one child you see this in your children because each one of them are different we had a we, we have a child that uh, when they were younger uh, th- that their conscience was was really sensitive uh, their conscience their co knowledge their inner voice and understanding that unique quality about that particular child uh, well that was a signal it was a sign to us that we need to care for that child in a particular way uh, because we could really exasperate the child or create fear of man in the child uh, because they had an oversensitive conscious. And so there's a way of talking to that child, understanding their psyche, their unique psyche. And then we had another child that has a a very rapid cognition, a a very fast mind. They would be able to, uh, to think quickly. And so we had to be very careful as to how we communicated this child. Let me give you an illustration of that. For example, you would not sneak up on this child and say, did you do it? Because you would not give their conscience enough time to kick in uh, to give an appropriate response, and because their mind was so quick, their cognition was so rapid that if you if you were to sneak up on them and say, "Did you do it?" they would immediately say, "Well, no, I didn't." That would be their default, Adamic, total depraved response. And so, as we were parenting this child, understanding the rapidity of their uh, the rapidness of their mind, uh, we wanted to give them a long runway to think about the answer that they were about to give us. And there are many other illustrations of this. I've just given you two as far as conscience and cognition are concerned, but again the Bible is just that comprehensive, and so having a fuller understanding of the soul, the body, and the behaviors is absolutely essential. And then we have the DSM-5 TR. TR means text revision. The DSM-5 Uh, It came out in 2013, and then, of course, there there have been multiple TRs along text revision of the previous DSMs, and so then a few years later, there was a text revision as they made some tweaks and changes to this ever-evolving psychology book, and so let's briefly uh, walk through a DSM chronology. It is important to know this, and I I think it's self-evident that, well, if there are five iterations, and actually there's more than five because there are also text revisions. But if there are so many iterations, that means uh, there are changes that happen along the way. And I want to get into a little bit later the motivation for some of those changes, because it's essential to understand that science is not always driving uh, the reason that these DSMs have changed through the years. But first of all, there was the DSM 1 in 1952. Now, I would say that this was a, a good faith argument that they wanted to standardize documents. There are so many, I, I don't want, say, well, I think it would be accurate to say competing uh, entities. Or so many entities that that have perspectives on on psychology. There are environmentalists, there are sociologists, and re, and the reason I say environmentalists is is because now uh, there is actually uh, people would say climate change causes us to do uh, X, Y, and Z, and so you have environmentalists that are vying for um, their uh, place in in the DSM, and then you have uh, psychiatrists and psychologists and sociologists, and anthropologists, and that they're different entities, and so each one of them has their own strand, and so there was a good faith, I believe, motivation to bring all of that information together, all those various entities together, and collate it into one document, the final document, and that was the DSM-1 in 1952. Well, in 1968, there was still competition, For example, the sociologists did not like uh, everything that was in the uh, DSM-1, and neither did the psychologists. And so there was a meeting of minds, and in 1968, they came out with the DSM-2. And then in 1980, there were still ongoing differences, and so we have the DSM three, and then in nineteen ninety four there was a rewriting, there was a rede- redefining, and I'll illustrate this. Uh, with a little more clarity and definition uh, in a moment. There was even a dis- deleting of some of the disorders in, in 1994 uh, with the dsm 4 uh, It used to be that, the, for example, that homosexuality was a deviant behavior, that there is something wrong with this person that needs to change. Well, that's no longer t- true. That has been stricken uh, from the record. That has been stricken from the DSM. Now, they have created a new disorder uh, Uh, It is called homophobia, and and you can see the shift there. The problem shifted from the individual uh, who is uh, struggling with uh, homosexual tendencies, uh, and even the word homosexual, by the way, uh, is a word that we should not uh, use anymore. The, and, and again, the language is, continues to shift, but it's not because of science. Uh, it's for other reasons uh, sociological reasons, cultural reasons, political reasons, uh, and even religious reasons as well. But the language begins to shift, but not only did the language shift, uh, the epicenter of the problem shifted as well. And so now the gay problem is not that the gay person has a problem, but anyone who looks down on that, uh, anyone that condemns that, anyone that would dare say that that is a sin problem, well, that is the individual uh, that has the issue now that is the one with the disorder and it is called homophobia and so again uh, there was even political reasons uh, lobbying reasons as to why uh, the DSM has evolved it was more than just competing entities vying for a uh, pole position uh, as far as the DSM, between the like say the sociologists and the psychologists, uh, but there was also a heavy political lobby lobby that has always been underwriting. There's been an undertone of uh, politicizing uh, the DSMs through the years, and that's why it's important for us to understand uh, that that we have we have to have a presuppositional cynical eye when we look at the DSM, because it's no longer a good faith argument, and I'll dig a little deeper in that in just a moment but we're getting into dangerous territory when we are beholding to the DSM knowing uh, that it is not one inspired by God, not at all, uh, and and it is depraved entities uh, that are trying to come up with an authoritative volume uh, that will resolve uh, our psychological, our soul issues. Now, I do not fault uh, the DSM committees over the years for having one. I mean, if you're going to reject God and reject his word, you have to come up with something. And so I understand that. Uh, is similar to if you're going to reject creationism, there has to be an alternate view. And so we have evolution. If you're going to reject pure psychology from God's Word, you have to have an alternate view. And so the DSM is the leading authority in the culture, and it is antithetical and even antagonistic to God's Word. And it is important that every Christian understand this. Now, by the way, When a person says that they have ADHD or OCD or PTSD, please hear me. I am not saying that those problems are unreal. I am not saying that they aren't experiencing something. That's not the issue. The problem is real. It is legit. The psychological issue that's going on with the individual is legit. But what we're talking about here is who has the authority to label what is going on. Nobody is saying. The Biblicist is not saying that the experience of PTSD is unreal or the experience of ADHD is unreal. Not saying that at all. But whoever labels the problem, whoever identifies the problem, that's going to set the course. That is the trajectory, and this is a watershed issue. And if you label what you are experiencing, for example, ADHD, that means you're going to go in a very clear direction that is not a biblical direction. And that is the problem. And sometimes when people get inside these arguments, they will say that the biblicist, the Christian, the biblical counselor, that they are saying that what I'm going through is not real. And again, that's not true at all. It is a very real experience. There is a disorderedness in the individual's soul. But again, if you call it the acronym, any acronym that comes out of the DSM, well, then that's going to send you on a pathway that at best, at best, uh, it will bring relief, but it will not bring transformation. And not only that, nine times out of ten, uh, you you will be uh, on medication for the rest of your life. And that is just a dangerous thing. To do, and that is why it is so important that we have a sufficiency of Scripture worldview, not just in our understanding, but also in our practice. Now, I would encourage you to watch the companion webinar to this one here, a biblical perspective on disorders, where I get into those labels and then walk through a biblical process to uh, to a better answer and a solution for whatever they labeled the problem to be OCD, PTSD, ADHD, etc. Again, the labeling is what starts the process and that becomes problematic. The DSM-5 was in 2013 and it was clearly affected by by politics and other lobbying groups as I have been uh, saying already and I'll speak to one specific issue to that in just a moment. It is important to understand that the DSM teaches materialism. And what I mean by that, uh, perhaps you have heard the the euphemism that that we are meat puppets. Uh, That's what they're talking about. It's materialism. It's physicalism, uh, which is an outworking of materialism. It's biodeterminism. Uh, What they're teaching is that we are one entity, not two entities, meaning there's no spirit. There's no soul. There's only organic uh, that we are physical, materialist. And again, they teach that, Of course, that's why uh, that they go down a, med- uh, a medication path. Now, the folks, uh, psych- there, there's so much paperwork, there's so many documents uh, where psychologists and psychiatrists will tell you, we do not know what the problem is. All they can do is look at signs look at behaviors the dsm i'll talk about shortly here is a descriptive psychology book that describes problems and so all they can do is look at these signs uh, the the things that the person is manifesting and then according to those signs uh, they will give it a label and then with the label they will give it medication it's relief at best it is not transformation and they really do not know where the source of the problem is, but part of that is because they have a materialistic worldview, meaning they teach that we are one unit, not a dichotomy. Now, I would be beholding to a dichotomy worldview, meaning body and soul. There is an interplay between the body and the soul in that we are, we are two parts— Body is a basket word where all of our physical parts go into it. Whether it's our hair, our eyes, our heart, our lungs, uh, all of our physical parts, our blood, it all fits within the body, physical, organic bucket. Soul is the counterpart. It is a basket word where all the parts fit in the soul. Uh, sometimes people confuse that they have a a, tri, a tripartite view of humanity, meaning that we're body, soul, and spirit. And they get that language uh, from the New Testament where it will talk about body, soul, and spirit, where it is actually stacking words to communicate, uh, to to emphasize. Jesus would do this where he said, love the Lord God with all your your heart, soul, mind, strength. He's stacking words, speaking hyperbolically uh, to emphasize the point, to punctuate the point is what he's doing there. Uh, But there is more than all your uh, heart, soul, mind, strength. There is spirit, there is intention, there's thoughts, there is emotions, there is conscience, there's motivation. There are a lot of soul parts, is what I'm saying, but soul is the word where all the non-organic aspects of us fit in. And so I would be a dichotomist. There are some people who are a trichotomist. They have a tripartite view, and they would be beholding to body, soul, and spirit. Now, I do not believe that the Bible teaches a trichotomist view. It teaches a dichotomist view. But one of the things that has happened uh, over the last several years is that people who are beholding uh, to the DSM, it's like now we have uh, three authorities in town. It used to be we only had two authorities two doctors, so to speak. We had the medical doctor that took care of all the physical problems, and then we had the pastor or the preacher who took care of all the soul problems. When Carl Jung and uh, Sigmund Freud came over in the early 1900s, they basically created a third category, uh, that is the psychologist. And it really aligns very well with a tripartite view. And I trust that you would do a deeper study uh, on Uh, The difference between a trichotomist and a dichotomist. And if you need uh, some help with that, I can send you a paper that will help walk through why the Bible teaches a dichotomous view and the fallacy of the tripartite view. But with the tripartite view, you have body, soul, and spirit. And so the way it plays out in our culture is we have the medical doctor to take care of the body. And then we have the psychologist that takes care of the soul. And then spiritual matters, well, that belongs to the preacher. He does cleanup work on spiritual matters. He is, uh, he, he is the least of these, and he's really a non-factor when it comes to our, cha- uh, our transformation of our souls And by the way, many Christians believe that, though they may not articulate it the way that I'm articulating it here. Uh, They will believe that there is spiritual benefit. We want to go to church, as we say. We want to hear God's Word preached. We want to be refreshed, uh, spiritually speaking. But on Tuesday afternoon, when that child is struggling or there's something going on in the soul of anybody, yours or anyone that you know, the default for so many Christians is, well, praise God for the preaching of His Word, but I have a psychological problem, and so I need to go to a psychologist. And now we're on the DSM pathway. Of course, then there's a medical problem uh, because we are body, and again, those are the three aspects. But the uh, the DSM uh, folks and the culture teaches materialism, and so they slide. Everything—spiritual, psychological, medical—into one unit. We are meat puppets. Uh, We are materialists. And so, in fact, the language actually communicates that. They know that there's something out there besides physical, uh, besides organic. And so they use words, and many Christians use these words as well, mental health, or you hurt my feelings. And you can see what's going on here, health is the issue, and they're dragging mental into our materialism it is a health issue. It's a physical issue. You need medication for this. And so they are given a courtesy nod that there's something non-physical going on. And they would even say that the mind is a part of the brain. So they're pulling the mind inside the brain. They're pulling mental inside of health. And then you'll hear uh, people talk about, well, you hurt my feelings as though you could do such a thing. Well, of course you can't hurt feelings. Uh, that that's, that's impossible. But they're using physical a physical word, hurt, uh, to talk about feelings uh, because they don't have a proper way of understanding what is really going on. By the way, a person who has hurt feelings, they don't have hurt feelings at all. Uh, feelings are a byproduct of your thoughts, and so thoughts causes uh, feelings. Uh, there, there's no discontinuity there. You can't have feelings without thoughts because thoughts create feelings. I illustrate it this way. Sometimes if someone put a gun to my face, I would have feelings. And the reason I would have feelings is because my thoughts would be running 100 miles an hour. What are you going to do? What's about to happen? Am I going to die? Those would be my thoughts. And of course, that's going to create emotion. And then, of course, if somebody walked up to me and gave me a million dollars, well, I would have emotions. I would have feelings. Feelings are always consistent with our thoughts. And so when you have hurt feelings, it just sends you down a bad pathway. Now, again, I'm not being word police here. I don't care what you say. It doesn't matter. Uh, I I don't play whack-a-mole with people with their wordsmithing. That's not the point here. And I hope nobody would would take up that mantle or take up that club and play whack-a-mole with people. However, what is important that we understand what is going on. And so mental health is, is the secularist that's trying to kind of explain something that they don't understand and just pull it into a materialist construct. And then people who use hurt feelings, well, they really don't understand that, well, no, feelings actually reveal what your thoughts are. And if you want to change your feelings, then you have to change your thoughts. But this kind of language fits nicely within the materialistic construct. Once you remove the soul, you're greenlit to abort children. This is one of the reasons that uh, people don't have a conscience issue about aborting children, about killing babies, because they're just meat puppets. It's just material. It's a fetus. It's not a child made in the image of God at conception. That's a whole nother argument. And that would be an argument that I would believe in. This is a child made in the image of God, body and soul. But if you can remove the soul, if you can remove the immaterial, non-organic part of a person, well, then you're greenlit. Uh, you have no conscience issue about aborting babies. And so the DSM labels create a mean uh, means to medicate behaviors, uh, our material being, and that is all that they can do. As I said earlier many uh, psych- psychologists and many psychiatrists are are honest is we do not know why this is happening to this person but what we do know if that they, they take this pill that they they medicate there'll be some behavioral modification to them and you will get this optimal outcome that you want in their behavior some people even have a a false continuum argument. I remember a gentleman telling me one time that his nephew was a, a, a hellion, uh, that he was uncontrollable. He went to a psychologist. The psychologist looked at his behavior and that you hit, you know, seven out of 10 of these. And so you have this acronym, let's say ADHD. They gave him a pill, his behavior was modified, and I'll I'll never forget it. You see the circular reasoning here where the man uh, told me, the uncle told me, uh, he said, well, obviously the psychologist was correct. He had ADHD because he gave him a pill, and now uh, the kid is well-behaved. And and so that is a false way of trying to come to a conclusion. All that happened there— is that the person took medication and they calmed down. Uh, That doesn't mean that you have solved anything and it doesn't mean that there's been any transformation whatsoever. Now, if your goal is just behavioral modification, well, I really wouldn't recommend that. By the way, I did that in the 70s when I smoked weed. Uh, I medicated my behavior, but I would have to stay on weed perpetually uh, because it was the medication of marijuana that gave me that sense of uh, calmness and and laid-backness and and so forth and so on. But of course, if you continue to do that, uh, there will be repercussions for taking any kind of medication, whether it's ongoing marijuana uh, or uh, medication that's prescribed by a psychiatrist. There's a threefold purpose, <clears throat> excuse me, there's a threefold purpose of the DSM. But first of all, I talked about this earlier. I'll get in the threefold purpose here on this screen. But I talked earlier about descriptive psychology, and it's important that you understand what descriptive psychology is if you do not at this juncture. Descriptive psychology is just describing a problem. That's all it is. And so when you go to a psychologist, the person will look at you, he'll ask you certain questions, and then depending on your answers or depending on what behavior you're manifesting, uh, there will be a a line item. And so let's say that uh, there are seven things that I am doing, seven things that I'm experiencing, seven things that that the psychologist is is seeing or the parents are seeing uh, in the child. It's just describing what people are seeing or describing what the person is experiencing. They'll take all those descriptions, all of those line items, and then they will find an acronym that they fit up under, the best fitting acronym, ADHD, for example. And so if these, let's say there's 15 things uh, for ADHD, and you hit eight of those things, and that's the best fit for the behaviors that you have, then that's how you get your label. Now, here's the problem with that. Some people believe, unfortunately, that if you can describe my problem and give me a label, then you have the authority to provide a solution. The truth is, anybody can look at someone and describe. It's like, you're doing these 10 things. And then, of course, if, if they take those 10 things and slide them into a list in the DSM up under a label, they say, wow, you understood me. You described me to a T. That is exactly what is happening inside of me. Therefore, I give you the authority to not only label me, but to develop a pathway for me to go forward. That is descriptive psychology. Now again, the easy part is describing what you're seeing in somebody. The easy part is listening to them share their experience with you and then feed that back to them. And then they could say, ah. finally, somebody understands what's going on. And at that point, there, that is the beginning of a transition. You described me. You understood me. Therefore, I'm going to give you the authority to develop a pathway, a protocol uh, for me to feel better. And that is dangerous. Everybody that can describe a problem is not necessarily an authority to present a solution. Now, the threefold purpose of the DSM, one, the DSM label, it gives the psychologist a pathway to provide. And so they find all of your experience and all of your behaviors and your iterations and manifestations, etc., and they fit that up under a label. And so that's one purpose of the DSM label. Number two, the DSM label, it gives the insurance company a code to pay. It's a coding label. And so now the psychologist can send the label to the insurance company. He's got ADHD. And of course, this is what the insurance company will do for ADHD. And many times people will go that route because now it is being paid for by their company because I have a label now. I have an identity. I trust you here how problematic that is. And then number three, the third reason, the DSM label gives the psychiatrist a medication to prescribe. And so that is the threefold purpose of what the DSM does. Now, I want to talk just briefly uh, about the... The transition or the transformation is kind of interesting. I'm talking about transgenderism. But the transition or transformation of the DSM, and I just want to give you one illustration. I've already given you one talking about homosexuality, uh, where the the shift of blame or the shift of cause uh, moved from I am gay, I have a problem, I need to change, to homophobia, you have a problem and I am normal. Well, that has also happened in transgenderism as well. In the dsm 4 it was called Gender Identity Disorder, G-I-D. Uh, that is the label. And so you go to a psychologist and you say, you know, I'm a, I'm a dude, I feel like a woman, etc. And then you give all these other experiences that you have, uh, they would say, well, they used to say uh, that you would have a gender identity disorder. But there's a problem in the GID uh, language, in the label. And the problem is, is that disorder uh, means you have a disordered soul. It means there's something wrong with you. And the transgender community recognizes, and the gay community, and the gay lobby, the homosexual lobby, and the, and the transgender lobby, they recognize, well, that is a problem. Because what we want to do is we want to normalize this behavior. We want to say this is normal, not abnormal. And so if you... you, if you feel like a woman when you are a male uh, when you're a dude uh, that's normal and that's what they wanted to communicate but they had a problem in the dsm4 it said you have a gender identity disorder which puts the point of the problem causation in you and so what they did quite brilliant by the way a great sleight of hand. In the DSM-5, they kicked out GID, and they changed it to gender dysphoria, which is the word confusion. You now have gender confusion. The reason that I'm struggling so much is because of the binary, male and female. The reason that I struggle so much is because of the patriarchy. The reason I struggle so much is because uh, of your prejudice toward me. The, the disorder changed from I have a problem to you are the cause of my problem, and that's what is embedded in the language of gender dysphoria. Therefore, if I have gender dysphoria, I'm not allowed to be normal See, I'm normal. I have gender dysphoria. I don't have gender identity disorder. I have gender dysphoria. And therefore, now we have affirmative care. Even the doctors are forced to affirm the diagnosis of the person who wants to change in their own mind, from male to female or female to male, this person has confusion because they have been beholding, for example, to a binary—a male and female. Therefore, we need to help them so that they can be normal. Uh, they won't have a problem anymore, and it's easy to fix by them being different from the gender that was assigned to them at birth. And so, we are the ones that created the problem for this person, and this is what I call the transgender phenomenon, where they shifted the blame from there's something wrong with me to there's something wrong with you, and so they had to change from disorder to dysphoria. Now it's a normal condition. And for those that you are listening by audio, that's air quotes. Uh, it's not normal at all. Uh, but and of course, they would say that anti-trans folks are the ones that are wrong. The big idea in this presentation is that there are two competing authorities present There's two competing authorities that present the pathway to transformation. The one that you choose will determine the course and the quality of your life. Now, I would encourage you, if you haven't watched a biblical perspective on disorders, that is the companion webinar to this one here. This one here is foundational on the DSM and the Bible. And then I I take this just a little bit further as we get inside the DSM and and begin to uh, create a biblical worldview for all of these disorders that has been forced, fostered upon our culture. Before you leave, one more thing. Uh, If you would pray for our ministry, I would really appreciate it. Uh, We believe that God's Word is sufficient uh, for all things pertaining to life and godliness. It is the transcending psychology book. There's nothing that that has ever been better. Nothing will ever be better. And I would ask that you would pray that we can continue to share the practical message of Christ far and wide. That you would follow us on all the socials. uh, wherever uh, you find us, the platforms that you use, and of course, share our content. Please let others know about lifeovercoffee.com and that you share our resources. Virtually everything that we do is free uh, because we want people to have it and to use it generously for themselves and also for others too. And then some of you are able to support our ministry. Uh, I would appeal to you to do that if you are able. Uh, The only way that we can survive is through donor support. And so we do need that support. And if you're in a position to help us, if you can support us, make a donation, uh, that would be fantastic. And then finally, uh, we do all online training for those that want to grow in discipleship and biblical counseling. Uh, This is a season of life thing, and if This is a season uh, for you where you can set aside A couple of years to do all online training. You don't have to go uh, anywhere. Uh, We built it online on purpose because uh, it's not possible or feasible or even wise for people to, many people to move. They just can't do that and get world class training. But you can at lifeovercoffee.com and you don't have to go anywhere. There's a QR code on the screen. If you put your phone camera over it, it will take you to the LMS that will walk you through what the mastermind program is all about so that you can be fully apprised of what's involved and then of course if you have any questions after that please let us know this webinar is titled our competing psychologies the best book for soul care thank you so much for listening my name is Rick Thomas you can find me at lifeovercoffee.com where we have conversations for transformation thank you and God bless thanks for joining us Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.